You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. What for? How Atlas Shrugged dramatizes the struggle for the value of purpose by Ben Baer. Yesterday we talked about the virtue of pride and how the virtue of pride was aimed at achieving char- values of character like self-esteem. We illustrated this using the character of Henry Reardon from Atlas Shrugged. What we're doing today is similar insofar as we're also going to be talking about a, an important moral principle from uh, Ayn Rand's ethics, the value of purpose. Now, it's a value, not a virtue, though there's a, there is a corresponding virtue that it helps achieve, the virtue of, that, that is achieved by it, the virtue of productiveness. And we're going to talk about it in relation to the story of Dagny, also in Atlas Shrugged. For in, in each of these cases, there's a struggle that each of them has to go through in order to practice, or in the case of Dagny, maintain the value of purpose. I'm going to just start by reading you a quote uh, from the middle of the book. This is, if you recall, and again, spoiler warning, I'm assuming a lot of knowledge about the shrugged here on the part of the audience. This is right after she has quit for the first time, quit the railroad for the first time after Directive 10289 passes. She goes to live in the cabin in the woods in Woodstock, New York, and she's trying to decide what to do with her life. She could renounce the railroad, she thought. She could find contentment here in this forest, but she would build the path, then reach the road below, then rebuild the road, and then she would reach the storekeeper of Woodstock, and that would be the end. And the empty white face staring at the universe in stagnant apathy would be the limit placed on her effort. Why? She heard herself screaming aloud. There was no answer. Then stay here until you answer it, she thought. You have no place to go. You can't move. You can't start grading a right of way until, until you know enough to choose a terminal. Now, the struggle that she's dealing with, and we'll come back to this uh, part of the story later in the talk, but the struggle she's dealing with, the dilemma, relates to a central conflict in the overall novel. For her, it relates to the question of whether she should go on strike at all, which is, of course, the major decision she has to make in this plot. And what I'll argue today is that this struggle relates to her struggle to maintain the value of purpose. The value of purpose in Ayn Rand's ethics, I think, is a challenging one to understand, largely because Ayn Rand just didn't write that much about it. The only thing that she wrote in nonfiction form comes very quickly and in passing. And yet, where she puts it is so important that she indicates that it's really important. I'm going to start just by showing you the the very small amount of nonfiction philosophy, the the fragments of this that we have. We'll spend then most of the rest of the talk looking at the fiction, which is where I think you really get the meat of what this is all about. So here's a paragraph from Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged, and it's on a lot of different things. Purpose comes up, but it goes by very quickly. Here's the paragraph. My morality, the morality of reason, is contained in a single axiom, existence exists, and in a single choice, to live. The rest proceeds from these. To live, man must hold three things as the supreme and ruling values of his life. Reason, purpose, self-esteem. 
reason is his only tool of knowledge, purpose as his choice of the happiness which that tool must proceed to achieve, self-esteem as his inviolate certainty that his mind is competent to think and his person is worthy of happiness, which means is worthy of living. So we talked a lot about self-esteem yesterday. It's another one of these supreme and ruling values. Purpose is one of them too, apparently. So important that we get here just one sentence on what it means. We get a little bit more, but not too much more, in a second passage, this time from the objectivist ethics uh, in the virtue of selfishness. And some of the same ideas are here, but there's a few extra points that clarify things a bit for us. Value is that which one acts to gain and or keep. Virtue is the act by which one gains and or keeps it. The three cardinal values, this time she's calling them cardinal values of the objectivist ethics, the three values which together are the means to and the realization of one's ultimate value, one's own life, are reason, purpose, self-esteem, which their three uh, with their three corresponding virtues, rationality, productiveness, and pride. And then a little bit more on something that isn't quite the same as the value of purpose, but it's clearly related given the way that it's phrased. Productive work is the central purpose, the central purpose of a man's life, the central value that integrates and determines the hierarchy of all his other values. Reason is the source, the precondition of his productive work, pride is the result. So what do we get from these passages? Well, like self-esteem, which we spent some time talking about, purpose is one of these cardinal values. I would argue that like self-esteem, it's a, it's a value of character. And so it is also one of the things that pride is concerned with achieving. So a lot of what we talked about yesterday is applicable here. Uh, though we also get that it, is, it has a corresponding virtue. Productiveness is the corresponding virtue of, of uh, purpose, just like pride is the corresponding virtue for self-esteem. So there's something about productive work that's instrumental in bringing about this value of purpose. But what is the value of purpose? Well, if it's a kind of value of character, then it's, it's something about our character. It's some state of our psychology that we're, that we're trying to achieve. But what state exactly? It's not exactly the same thing as what she is here and in the previous one calling the ultimate value or the ultimate purpose. That's your, your life or your happiness because it's a means to and a realization of it. So again, clearly related, but not the same thing. And then we have this other idea of the central purpose that comes up in that second paragraph where productive work is the central purpose, but uh, that's not quite the same as purpose either, but they're related. I'm going to try to clarify the differences and the relationships uh, among these different concepts toward the end of the talk today. But I think what we need to do first before even trying to bother with that is to try to concretize and illustrate what we're talking about by going to the actual fiction. That's where the meat of the philosophy is actually developed in Ayn Rand's thinking usually. And it's where you can tell what she means by some of these concepts, even when she says very little about them in nonfiction form. So without any further ado, let us go straight to the fiction. And I'm going to say something about three characters, but most of what I'm going to say is about Dagny. But I have to start with Francisco. He's the one who I get the title of this talk from, because what for is his famous line. 
in uh, very close to the beginning when we're getting the story of, uh, of, Fran of Francisco's and Dagny's childhood together, we're told, what for? It was the first question he asked about any activity proposed to him. I think I have, yeah, there it is. First activity, of any activity proposed to him, and nothing would make him act if he found no valid answer. He flew through the days of his summer month like a rocket, but if one stopped him in mid-flight, he could always name the purpose of his every random moment. Two things were impossible to him, to stand still or to move aimlessly. I think we can take it for granted that Francisco is someone who's being portrayed here as, as having achieved the value of purpose. And that's, that turns out to be important for Francisco later, of course, because uh, he's the one who then goes on to become a playboy, or it looks like he's becoming a playboy, which is what makes it a big mystery that someone so purposeful could then you know, basically be rotting his life away. And that's part of why Dagny's so perplexed about it. But if this is what part of what it means to be purposeful, then I think part of what it means is you have achieved the value of purpose. You've achieved this kind of character value. When you have the sort of character, when you have the sort of psychology that just habitually is on the premise of asking this question, what for? You're trying to figure out how all the things that you're doing add up to something that you're trying to achieve. Now, there's a lot of questions I think that we still have to ask and answer about what it means to be that way and whether that's all there is to it. Uh, one question that we'll talk about is if you have achieved the value of purpose, then when you answer, when you answer the question, what for, is your answer always going to be the same for everything that you do? Are you going to cite the same concrete goal that you're working toward for everything you do? Uh, the way that Francisco is portrayed is he's doing everything for the sake of Danconia Copper. Is that exactly what it means to, be, uh, to, to achieve the value of purpose? That's something we'll come back to. So clearly, Francisco is someone who's portrayed as having achieved this value. Someone who's portrayed as clearly not having achieved it is, is James Taggart. In fact, if you recall, again, in that flashback scene to their childhood, someone asks Francisco, what's the de most depraved type of human being? And Francisco's answer is the man without a purpose. And that's, that's James Taggart. Uh, it comes up because they were just talking with James. And then when you actually look at the way James is portrayed, it's pretty clear that that's, that's the way he is. Uh, this is from later in the, in the novel, book three, chapter four. He, James had never intended going anywhere. He had wanted to be free of progression, free of the yoke of a straight line. He had never wanted his years to add up to any sum. What had summed them up? Why had he reached some unchosen destination where one could go no long, where one could no longer stand still or retreat? That, this is from the scene, the beginning of uh, the anti-life chapter where he's walking through the alleys and trying to evade why he's going home to Cheryl. So uh, if you're interested, ask me later why I think Francisco says that the most depraved man is the man without a purpose. I think this is something that confuses a lot of people. I have some thoughts on that. But, so it seems Francisco is kind of the paradigm case of somebody who's achieved the value of purpose. James Taggart never bothered to try. What I want to spend most of the day talking about is Dagny. Because I think Dagny is someone who, like Francisco, has probably achieved this 
character, value, of purpose pretty early in her life, but especially because of the events of the novel, she struggles to maintain it. If you remember from uh, that one of the paragraphs I read earlier, a value is that which you act to gain and or keep. Uh, to keep a value requires action, and that's something that we see Dagny going through in uh, uh, all kinds of ways. I actually want to spend most of the time today just really retelling the story of Dagny, but specifically with reference to this aspect, with, re with reference to her struggle over purpose. So you'll, you'll uh, recognize, I think, all of these events, but maybe you didn't see quite how some of the same themes were coming up time and time again, and how they connect to each other, and how they uh, are really instrumental to moving the plot forward. So Dagny, I think, has... I'll get to that quote later. Dagny has achieved purpose pretty early in her life, and you see that in the very opening scene of the novel where Eddie is having a flashback to their childhood together, and Eddie has just gotten done telling Dagny how they need to do whatever is right, and that means things like winning battles, saving people out of fires, climbing mountains, and does anybody remember how Dagny responds to that statement? She uses Francisco's question, what for? And, you know, arguably under his influence, because by that time they already know each other. So she's on that premise pretty early on, and pretty clearly maintains it, and is clear about maintaining it well through the beginning of the story. Uh, for instance, after she's finished building the John Galt line, which required a lot of purposeful effort on her part, when she goes for a ride in the train, you remember she's in, on the locomotive, she opens up the engine room, she looks at the motor, uh, she looks at it and she thinks, two aspects pertaining to the inhuman were radiantly absent, the causeless and the purposeless. Every part of the motor uh, uh, was an embodied answer to why and what for, like the steps of a life course chosen by the sort of mind she worshipped. It's after the John Galt line starts to be challenged. It's after the, the bureaucrats impose all kinds of regulations and the bond moratorium and they try to kill Colorado that she really starts to struggle, though. At one point, uh, beginning of book two, chapter one, uh, when she's uh, beginning to have to dismantle the John Galt line, it's at this point where her path starts to become unclear. And you'll recall, right after they built the John Galt line, they went to Wisconsin, they discovered the motor, the motor uh, that would uh, create electricity from static electricity in the atmosphere. And she makes it part of her search, part of her quest to find the inventor of this motor. Now at first, of course, she's, it's, the connection to her work is clear. She wants to find the motor, uh, the inventor of the motor, so she can get the motor, so she can put it on her trains and make her trains amazing. But when the, the railroad is starting to fall apart, there's then a question, well, what do I need this motor for? We can't even get you know, diesel, uh, eng diesel engines anymore. Yet she's still searching for the man who invented the motor. And the way she thinks about it at this point is her quest for the man who invented the motor was the only part of her work that made her able to bear the rest. It was the only goal in sight that gave meaning to her struggle. 
There were times when she wondered why she wanted to rebuild the motor. What for? Some voice seemed to ask her. Well, whose voice is that? Because I'm still alive, she answered. But her quest had remained futile. Now, it's interesting that she's still asking the, the what for question at this point. But her answer to the question, why is she pursuing the inventor of this motor? Why does she want to find it so badly? It's not any longer because, well, I can put the motors on my train and help the railroad be better. It's simply, I'm still alive. So she's not seeing, she's not viewing the motor anymore as, as some kind of means to an end of her business. It's more like a, some kind of end in itself. And that's important uh, for something that we'll come back to later. Things get worse for her. You may recall the moratorium on brains, Directive 10289 passes. That's why she quits the first time and goes to that cabin in Woodstock uh, where we looked at the opening scene. And it's at this point where we get probably the most explicit statement that what's at stake now for Dagny is the issue of purpose. And this I will put up on the screen. This will, I, I promise it's the longest thing I'll put up on the screen. I won't even read the whole thing here, just the beginning. Then she, because you remember what she's doing at this point is she's just finding jobs for herself. She's rebuilding paths, she's reshingling the roof, all this kind of stuff, trying to keep busy because she's otherwise kind of paralyzed about her life. And she's portrayed as thinking. Then she understood that what she needed was the motion to a purpose, no matter how small or in what form. The sense of an activity going step by step to some chosen end across a span of time. I'll skip the rest here and go to the rest here. She says, she thinks, the cooking of meals, she thought, is like the feeding of coal to an engine for the sake of a great run. But what would be the imbecile torture of coaling an engine that had no run to make? It is not proper for man's life to be a circle, she thought, or a string of circles dropping off like zeros behind him. Man's life must be a straight line of motion from goal to farther goal, each leading to the next into a single growing sum, like a journey down the track of a railroad from station to station. Oh, stop it, stop it, she told herself in quiet severity when the scream of the wounded stranger was choked off. Don't think of that. Don't look too far. You like building this path. Build it. Don't look beyond the foot of the hill. And you may remember that <laughs> she tells herself, stop it several times after she considers different kinds of projects that she could engage in. Uh, in each case, it's because she did try looking beyond the foot of the hill. So there she notices this stream. She says, I could, I could dam the stream and I could use that to have a hydroelectric dam. I could power the cabin. We could start growing orchards and we could build a spur to the local railroad. Oh, stop it. Or she notices this old broken down country road and you could connect that to a highway and you could then run, you could, the, you could get it to the freight depot of the local, oh, stop it. And I think part of what's being done here is Rand is, is trying to emphasize to us that she's got these automatized um, ways of thinking about her business and, and it's like her business has just died and she, ha she has just realized it yet and she hasn't deprogrammed herself. That's part of what's going on here. But I think the other part is to say something about the importance of the role of purpose. And she's herself now reflecting on that. 
She needs to have a sense of moving forward to something. But the fact that she always ends up engaging in one of these projects and then trying to connect it back to the railroad suggests, to me at least, that, that the need here is not simply a psychological need. It's not just that she needs a sense of purpose. She needs purpose. She needs all the things that she's doing actually to add up to something. And you see some of the reasons here in what she's saying. She's saying something about how it's not proper for man's life to be a circle. It's rather to be a straight line in the motion to a purpose. That's, there's something about the nature of human life that demands this kind of activity, that we, human beings live in the long range, in the long range pursuit of chosen goals. And something else that's important here is that it also matters where you're going. Not every long range chosen goal is a good one for your life. That's why in the part that I quoted at the beginning of the talk, she's talking about you don't know where to build the road unless you know what the terminal is, right? And if you also remember, part of what she was uh, talking about in that passage was if all I have to do, if all I get to do is build the, the road to a terminal where the, the local Woodstock shopkeeper is, that's not going to be good enough. If you remember, the shopkeeper was this person. She asks, why do you leave these vegetables in the sun? Well, they've always been there. And I mean, this is not what she's building a railroad for. But that means that the, it's not just a psychological need. It's not just that the railroad needs to be built to a good terminal. It's that it needs to be built to the terminal with the right kind of people. And the people that she's expecting to meet at the end or that she's expecting to transport are centrally important to her. That's something uh, we'll come back to as well. And it's probably therefore not an accident that shortly after this meditation of hers, we get the news that she hasn't lost hope just yet because she's still thinking about the motor and the man who invented it. The motor she thought was not a link to the past it was her last link to the future. To kill it seemed like an act not of murder, but of suicide. Her order to stop it would be her signature under the certainty that there was no terminal for her to seek ahead. So she's thinking of the motor and the man who invented it as a kind of terminal for her at this point, as, as, a, as a purpose she could, she could, she might still try to achieve, but something that's now completely disconnected from her railroad. She's quit. She's not interested in getting the motor so that she can put it on her trains. Now, as you know, after the tunnel disaster, after she finds out about the tunnel disaster, even after Francisco comes to the cabin and tries to convince her not to go back to the world, she goes back to the world. It's too much for her. And as she slowly starts to accustom herself to life in this dreary existence, trying to fight to get the, the railroad open again, she's really beginning to lose hope. And I would never say that what it means to have the value of purpose is to always be asking the question, what for, and to always know the answer. I think it's probably sufficient that you be on the premise of asking the question. And Dagny's been doing that this whole time. So I think she's been struggling to maintain her sense of purpose, but it's been taking a lot of work. 
after the tunnel disaster and after she comes back to the world, it's where you can start to see it slipping for her. Because this is where you probably remember the scene. She's looking out the window uh, up at the Taggart building in the fog. And she's thinking about, it's unclear who or what she's thinking about, but I'll read you the passage. You, she thought, whoever you are, whom I have always loved and never found, you whom I expected to see at the end of the rails beyond the horizon, it is my love for you that had kept me moving. Now I know I shall never find you. That is not to be reached or lived. I will go on serving you, even though I'm never to win. I was... Uh, cut a few pieces there but so here's a case now where you know she she had been on the premise of always asking what for but it's starting to slip because she's maybe acknowledging to herself it doesn't matter what for because I might not be able to achieve my goals I'll go on fighting anyway but not really for any purpose and in the same scene she says that she's never accepted uh, the idea of hopelessness. But she seems to be giving into it anyway. She, she, and she, she thinks of whatever she's feeling as a kind of unrequited love and, and that's kind of doomed to be unrequited. So this is this kind of life is hopeless view. Is she's always rebelled against it. So this is where you can see her grip on the value of purpose beginning to slip. Another thing to notice about uh, that, that passage, she said that the man that she expected to see at the end of the rails, her love for him had kept her moving. She's talking about a person now, not a railroad. That's important. Now, shortly after this, she, she sees Francisco again. He comes back to her, try to say, well, why are you doing this? Why are you helping uh, to to feed the looters. And one of the points that she makes is, no, I'm going to run trains until there's no railroad left to, left to run. Again, this kind of hopeless quest, it sounds like. But Francisco says something very important to her, which gets connected to other issues later in the plot. He says, but you wouldn't run trains if they were empty. And it, they also have a conversation about what it means for a train not to be empty. What kind of person, what kind of man are you trying to serve? He asks her. And she says, the man of ability, the life of the man of ability who might have perished in that catastrophe, but will escape the next one. So that gives us an idea of the what for, the deeper what for of her view of the railroad. She's not just doing things to run a railroad. She's running a railroad to serve a certain kind of person. As it turns out, the same kind of person whose life, sh who, who's, uh, she just said her love for him had kept her moving, it turns out, the man of ability. This is also something important to remember. <sighs> now, when she gets to the valley, her dilemma and her conflict and her choice becomes fully conscious and fully explicit to her. Because now she knows who the man who made the, the motor actually is. She meets John Galt. And she realizes the stakes in this choice. And now here's an important passage because it's where she is 
fully describing them. She's saying about the valley and about her time with Galt. This was her goal, the end of track, the point beyond the curve of the earth where the two straight lines of rail met and vanished, drawing her forward. She had found it, everything she'd ever wanted. It was here in this room, reached in hers, but the price was the net of rail behind her. The rail would vanish, the bridge that would crumble, the signal lights that would go out, and yet everything I had wanted, she thought, looking away from the figure of a man with sun-colored hair and implacable eyes. So, and then slightly later she says, but she had come to it and she could not find no answer. She could not give him up or give up the world, she thought, looking at Galt that evening. She has to choose now between the railroad and Galt. I think the simplistic way of understanding the objectivist view of productiveness and the value of purpose would say, well, career comes first. It's the central value. So forget about John Galt, go back to Tiger Transcontinental. Obviously, the choice is not that simple for her. And she, but she, I mean, she does go back. You know, she goes back when she sees Reardon's plane in the sky. She goes back in part because she knows there's still some kind of contradiction that she's facing, and she has to figure out a way to resolve it. At one point, right after she's gotten back and she's working on the railroad again, she says, this is my railroad. Do I have this one? Yeah. This is my railroad, as she looked at a vault vibrating to the sound of distant wheels. This is my life, as she felt the clot of tension, which was stopped and suspended with, within herself. This is my love, as a thought of the man who, perhaps, was somewhere in those tunnels. There can be no conflict among these three. What am I doubting? What keeps us apart here, where only he and I belong? So she thinks there should be no conflict at all between career, love. And I think the fact that she's struggling with this point and the fact that she's trying to reconcile this and see how can you resolve these two, that's also very important to what it is to struggle. It's important for what it is to struggle for the value of purpose. And I won't go into too many more details about the plot. There are really just two more important points that you need to know about to see how this story wraps up. One is that in the course of her time back in the world after leaving the valley, she realizes something about the people who are left in the world who she's actually serving. She realizes something about the passengers on the train. And the way that she puts it to herself is she was running nothing but freight trains. The passengers to her were not living or human. It seemed senseless to waste such enormous effort on preventing catastrophes and protecting the safety of trains carrying nothing but inanimate objects. So what does that remind you of from a previous scene with Francisco? Exactly. Would you keep doing this if you were running empty trains? And now, well, the trains aren't, you know, literally empty. There are human bodies on them. But she's calling them freight trains. These people are not really human. The ones who are left in the world, the ones who are running the world. And where this really gets punctuated for her is close to the end, where uh, each, uh, Galt is captured, and she 
they put Galt on the, on the stage, on TV, and she sees people reacting to him, and they look afraid of Galt's face. And it's at this point, uh, there's a complex series of philosophical developments that go up to this, that she realizes these people don't want to live. They want him to die. And when she realizes that, she thinks the horror she felt was only a brief stab, like the wrench of a switching perspective. She grasped that the objects she had thought to be human were not. So now the trains are really empty. Not only that, but the people who are on these empty trains, who are not fully human, are trying to kill John Galt. They want him dead. Uh, and that's not just a metaphor, because at a certain point she realizes they're actually going to put him on a torture rack. So she's got a railroad, she's got trains, but now there's nothing on them. She knows there's nothing on them. And she knows that there's just no good answer to the question, what for? And that's, of course, why and when she decides to go on strike. So with that in mind, let's, let's take a step back now to, to go back to what Ayn Rand said about the value of purpose and how some of the things that we've just observed about Dagny and her struggle relate to the abstract statements we saw in the nonfiction. Well, I do think it's important that achieving the value of purpose, just like achieving the value of reason, the value of self-esteem, is not equivalent, it's not synonymous with achieving the ultimate purpose of one's life, which is one's life. Uh, that's your life as a whole reason, purpose, self-esteem, these three cardinal values, these are three aspects of your life that are very important to achieve. They're not the whole thing, but they're important enough aspects that they're, they're worthy of being conceptualized as this cardinal moral value supreme and ruling values of your life. And what exactly now is that value? I think that we've gotten the idea that it's, a kind of, it's having a kind of perspective on your life. It's having a perspective, being on a premise of always asking what for. There's more to it than that, which I'll get to in a moment. But obviously there's a connection between achieving the value of purpose and the ultimate value of your life. That's why she says these three values are the means to and the realization of your life. If you have the necessary perspective on your life and you know what all the pieces are for, you're going to be better at living it. You're going to know what thing is, f because you need knowledge to live. You need knowledge to direct the choices that you're going to make about what kind of values you're going to choose so that they all add up to this growing sum. That's especially because of the fact of that life, that living a life and pursuing the ultimate value of your life is not as sometimes people misunderstand it, it's not the same thing as just doing whatever you can to work, to make money, to get food, to serve the purposes of your cellular metabolism. That's a point, that's a way that Harry Binswanger often puts it. Ayn Rand didn't write Atlas Shrugged for her mitochondria. There's more to a human life than that. And that's part of what we saw in that passage from Dagny talking about what was distinctive about the nature of human life, that human life is a, a distinctive kind of activity. It's the activity of a conscious being who projects goals over the course of a lifetime, over the course of years, and chooses values to incorporate into this ongoing activity. That's not just cells. That's the activity of a conscious being. 
Living is the pursuit of a set of self-reinforcing values, all of which are chosen. And so one thing that that's important for is understanding that when we think about that what for question that so importantly embodies the value of purpose, the what for question is not just that you've got a, some single concrete end, like running trains, and now everything you've got to do is about running trains. A lot about what, who's on those trains, and where they're going, and what they're being used for is important as well. The value of purpose, as I said, is, is, is it a certain perspective that you have on your life, on what all of the things that you do in your life are for, being on the premise of asking that and trying to get answers regularly. But it's not simply understanding how the different things you do are means to a certain concrete end. I think a better way of thinking about it is having a perspective on how all the things you do with your life are parts of an organic whole. Now, in a lot of cases, the, the, the harmony there is of means to ends, but not always. And I think that'll become a little clearer when we wrap up with, with the very last point, which is, or the second to last point, which is why the value of purpose is not identical to, though very related to, the idea of a central purpose. Now, we saw discussion of the central purpose in that second paragraph right after reason, purpose, self-esteem in the objectivist ethics. Here it's important. Ankar Gatti, I think, made the point once in an OAC class. If you see someone writing about a central purpose, well, that suggests that there are non-central purposes too. Logical enough. But the fact that they're non-central doesn't mean that, well, they're just means to the end. You could make the mistake of thinking, well, if productive work is your central purpose in life, then everything else you do has got to be a means to the end of your productive work. So when you go to a movie, uh, it, it, you enjoy the movie and it makes you happy, which is just going to make you a better accountant. Or you go out on a date with a girl and you have a great time and you have some great sex, and therefore you're going to be you know, uh, crunching numbers even better the next day. That is not what the difference between central and non-central purpose is about. The idea of the central purpose is the way that she puts it, that the central purpose, let me just get this line again, is what integrates and determines the hierarchy of, his, of all his other values. So it's central because it's the thing in your life that is the most central to your functioning. Think of it as the way your heart is central uh, to, your to the functioning of your body. If you took it out, you'd die, but that doesn't mean that everything else in your body uh, is serving the purpose of your heart. Career, I think, is very similar. And I think uh, Jean Maroney had some good things to say about this topic yesterday uh, in her speech on central purpose. But there are a lot of other values in life that are not simply means to the end of career or productive work, which nonetheless are important values and which nonetheless are ends in themselves. So examples here include your uh, love for art, recreation, and very importantly for what we're discussing, romantic love. The relationships you have with other people are not simply means to the end of your career. It's true. 
uh, that when you achieve these non-central purposes, they do actually help your central purpose. And there's probably some evolutionary story you could tell about how these non-central purposes became part of a human life because of the means they how they served as means to end. But once they become so important, they kind of take on a life of their own. They become part of the overall whole of life. And to pursue them is to pursue an end in itself. That's not contradictory with saying that, uh, that life is an end in itself because they are parts of your life and they're super important parts of your life. They're not of as central importance to your life as something like career. You can, you can live without them for a while, but it sucks. So why does, so this means the value of purpose is not quite the same as the idea of central purpose. Because after all, in all of these passages we've been looking at where Dagny's struggling about the what for, a lot of it is now in the context of she doesn't even know what her career is going to be. And yet the man at the end of the motor, uh, the, the man who invented the motor, the man at the end of the, of the line is still really important to her. Let me put a, one last passage up on the screen. Uh, this is from Galt's speech as well. It's from the paragraph on the virtue of productiveness, which is the virtue that corresponds to the value of purpose. And it's, it's important to look at the way he ends that discussion. Uh, the way he begins it is by talking about how productiveness is recognizing the fact that you need to choose to live, that you need to reshape the earth in the image of your values. But then he ends it this way. The man who makes another man his goal is a hitchhiker no driver should ever pick up. Your work is the purpose of your life, and you must speed past any killer who assumes the right to stop you. Any value you, you might find outside your work, any other loyalty or love, can be only travelers you choose to share your journey and must be travelers going on their own power in the same direction. This idea of loved ones and friends as fellow travelers in life is a metaphor, I think, that's powerful, that objectivism uses a lot. And the idea is, I mean, the fellow travelers, they're not just your slaves, they're not just your servants, they're not there to just be means to the end of your happiness, though they are means to the end of their happiness. They're ends in themselves, but they happen to be along with you on the ride. And I think part of what it means to have the value of purpose is to be thinking about how do all of these different values relate to each other? Do the non-central purposes that I've selected in my life, are they complementary to the central purpose? That doesn't mean are they means to the end, but are they, do they orbit around it in a complementary way? You know, it's not an accident that Dagny runs a railroad and Galt invented a motor. They have a lot of values in common, even besides philosophical ones, and that will make their journey together complementary. I'll say one last thing about that, the one line that we get about purpose in Atlas Shrugged, which is the choice of happiness, which one's reason must proceed to achieve. Well, very quickly, happiness is a non-contradictory state of joy, according to objectivism. It's the state of consciousness that proceeds from the achievement of your values. It's a psychological perspective on successfully living your life. If you now take into account all the things that we've said about what the value of purpose is, I think it's easier to see why it is the choice of that happiness which your reason has to proceed to achieve. Because it's the choice to make sure that all the values that you choose are coherent with each other, add up to a sum, which when you then achieve these values, that's where happiness comes from.
I'll close by saying that, so Dagny, I've argued that Dagny's struggle here is a struggle to maintain, to keep the value of purpose. In the end, she wins the struggle. The struggle that she faces is atypical. Uh, the, the reason that her love and her work have been torn apart from each other, such that she has to make this dramatic choice, is because the looters in the society have thrown this wrench into the works of her life, pitting her career against her love. Most of us don't have to make dramatic choices like this in our life. We don't have to face a hero we love who's trying to frustrate our own pursuits because he knows they're contradictory and we don't yet know them. That's there for dramatic effect. But I think that that kind of dramatic conflict does dramatize the essential issue at stake here. Because we can work for goals, which we may be at one point selected for good reasons, but which over the course of time, because of circumstance, because of changes in ourselves, perhaps don't add up to our lives, uh, don't add up to the sum that we wanted our lives to add up to in the first place. So I'll close by encouraging you to think about these kinds of issues in your own life, to ask that what for question. If you are building your railroads, why are you building them? What for? Are you running any empty trains of your own? And very importantly, who are you traveling with and who do you ex expect to see at the end of the line? Thank you. Okay, I think we can take a question up here. Hi. Well, the way that you described it, I'm not yet convinced it's, it's uh, inconsistent with what I was describing. Uh, if, if the what's next is the next goal that you're working for, especially if, it's, if you already knew you were working for it. Now, what I would be a little worried about is if what you mean by that is you're doing something, you're going to see what happens, and then you're going to see if that achieves anything else, but that anything else wasn't something that you were already purposely trying to do. So I'm not sure which one of those you meant. Well, I'm not sure why you, you think it would. Can you give me an example? Well, there's a lot about that course of action that probably is inconsistent with the value of purpose. Yeah, because, and, and, and this is part of the reason, well, somebody, I said someone should ask me the question, why does, why does James Taggart think that the most depraved man is the man without a purpose? So if anyone was going to ask that, I'll just answer it now. Um, because the, the kind of 
decisions that you just described, I think, illustrate the point. The reason that when I read that passage the first time, it sounded strange to me, was I thought, well, surely the most depraved man is the one who's got some really evil purpose, and he's like a calculating genius who's orchestrating everything for devious ends to achieve this one, over like he wants to destroy the world. That's a view that you could have of evil only if you believed evil was powerful. Ayn Rand uh, notably thinks evil's impotent. And to say that the paradigm case of a, of a depraved person is someone who's got this overarching goal and everything he does is for that purpose, uh, it gives evil too much power. Evil is actually more like James Taggart, who's never really thought about why he's doing what he's doing. He stumbles into things. He stumbles into them because of some kind of unstated motive and then comes up with some rationalization for it after the fact, which is what it sounded like you were describing in terms of that bank robber. Uh, and and that, that's why it's, the, it's depraved. Because, uh, yeah, so that's, does, does that help answer your question? Well, you'd need to have a reason for what the money's for. Looks like we have an online question. Yeah, this one's uh, related to what you were just saying, Ben. Um, so, <clears throat> is the purposeless, lazy hippie more evil than a dedicated Wehrmacht officer willing to kill and die for his purpose? Yeah, it is related. So, I mean, I think part of the problem is that the, the Wehrmacht officers are probably a lot more like the, the lazy hippies than most people actually think. Uh, and you know, this is the lesson that we were supposed to have gotten from uh, Hannah Arendt in her, uh, her you know, recounting of the life of uh, Eichmann, who's this kind of everyday German bureaucrat who's just, who just does what he's told. Now, it's true that the people who told him to do things are perhaps a little bit more conscious in their purposes than, than, than Eichmann was. But that doesn't stop Eichmann from being evil. Uh, especially because if you think about the, the, the higher level operatives wouldn't have been able to enact what they did without the lower level ones who just went along with it because somebody told them to do it. I mean, it's, it's also true that there's a difference between drift and evasion, that in order to get to the point of being someone like Hitler, you've got to engage in so much rationalization and so much evasion that you're probably more evil than just the, the people who are taking orders from you. But even someone like Hitler only got to the point of being able to have these massively evasive rationalizations by stumbling and bumbling through his own life, trying to become a painter and then staging different pushes and sitting around in prison wondering about what's next. <laughs> so let's go to the floor mic. Well, so if you're, if you're talking about, if you're asking about uh, what I was saying about, for instance, romantic love and, and, and art, um, here's a few things. One is, do you experience a direct form of pleasure because of it? Um, you know, the, one of the things that makes art art is that you, and it's something that I, you don't have to have anything like the objectivist theory of aesthetics to understand, is that 
there's, there's something pleasurable about contemplating it for its own sake. Now, it's a very distinctive kind of pleasure. But this is why we put pictures around, we put frames around pictures and statues on pedestals uh, to hold them up, to contemplate. And to attempt to analyze why you like it seems kind of like an affront, like, I just like it. Now, Ayn Rand, in her view of aesthetics, says you can still explain what's good about art. This is her argument for why there's a psycho-epistemological function of art. So it does still serve a means to the end of preserving man's consciousness, which he needs in order to live. But it's experienced as an end in itself. And so the things that are the ends of themselves, I think, are experienced that way. They're still part of the end that is the, of the whole that is the end because of the way they serve as a means. But like I said, they've become so important in our lives, and love is the other example of this, that uh, they've taken on a life of their own and become part of the end. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and that's why she uh, that's why she argues for the psychoepistemological function of art in the way that she does, and she has similar views about romance. The the fact that and and it's actually very similar to what she says in aesthetics that other people that we love are of value to us because of their visibility, because they 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 embody uh, the abstract the abstract values that we have in sort of just the same way that art does, except it's in the person of another, which is doubly powerful, and that's why it's so pleasurable to us, but it, 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 it also serves our life. Maybe, but only if you already had the objectivist theory of man's life as a standard of value. And I don't think that Rand could have formulated her theory that, that ra the terms, methods, and conditions necessary for the fulfillment of a rational life was the standard of moral value if she hadn't already surveyed the whole variety of different human activities like love and art and so forth and seen how they actually fit into that goal in the first place. So if you didn't have that standard, I think you'd... you'd you'd probably be too quick to rule something out just because it gives you lots of happiness. Happiness is the ultimate end. Yeah, hedonism is a problem, but I think you, you don't even need to be a philosopher to see there's a difference between promiscuous pleasure and things that add meaning to your life. An online question? Uh, sh sure, but first, could you remember to repeat the floor mic questions for the online audience oh, sure, they're sorry. having trouble hearing? Yeah. Um, the last question was, how do you know when something is an end in itself value and not just a means to an end? That's what I was answering. Yeah. So I, I have an online question. Uh, could we say that people who in their career produce not values but disvalues or destroy values, like many college professors and intellectuals in the humanities, <laughs> do not achieve a cardinal value of purpose because they do not produce values? Yeah. <laughs> I think, that I think that question answers itself. Um, I don't know what more there is to say. Yeah, if you're destroying values that are of value to human beings, you're a human being too, uh, and you're undercutting your own life ultimately. And so that is not a way of being purposeful. Up here on the, the mic.
the question is, are productive geniuses, do they have better uh, a grip on the value of purpose than ordinary people who are moral but not productive geniuses? Okay. I do, first, I don't think that being a genius is relevant either to self-esteem or the value of purpose. Being a genius just means you're really smart and you can make really cool things or you can dis create or discover really cool things. That's an issue of intelligence. Uh, Robert Stadler was a genius, but he was evil uh, and not moral and without self-esteem and with no value of purpose. Um, now, if, if you're talking about, uh, let's say, somebody like Bill Gates, who is a genius and who's also successfully, who's objectively succeeded in creating really valuable products, if the question is, does he have more self-esteem or more purpose than your average moral person? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. It's, po it's possible. Uh, um, objectively succeeding in production requires both. It requires genius and purpose. And so when somebody actually succeeds, that means they have a pretty good idea of what they're doing with their time and their life. Now, uh, I, I want to be careful about that because, I mean, it, I've also been emphasizing that purpose is not just about production, that it's about seeing how all the pieces of your life fit together, including the non-central purposes, which includes relationships. Uh, and we all now know about how Bill Gates just got divorced from his wife. And if you watch the documentary on, uh, on Netflix, what's it called? The Inside Bill's Brain? If you watch the scenes with his wife, I think you'll find out why. And, <laughs> and uh, he, I don't think he was thinking very carefully about why he was with her or what she was adding to his life. I mean, she's a Lillian Reardon figure if I've ever seen one before. Glad you like that. Uh, do we have, we, have, we have one minute left, so uh, can we do another online question? Sure. Thanks. Uh, Remember, again, you'll be able to ask other questions on the panel on Wednesday. Uh, <clears throat> when Dagny left the valley, her central purpose was the railroad, not the man at the end of the line. But it had seemed like she'd been running the railroad for that man. I felt frustrated with Dagny not getting it. Was that uh, Rand's purpose? Not getting it that she was running the railroad for the man? Well, she, she herself uh, states that she's doing it for that man to Francisco. So I don't know that it's that Dagny doesn't get it. What she doesn't get is that by being in the world and continuing to feed the looters, she's undercutting her own purpose. She's undercutting her own ability to help that man. Uh, and I, this is maybe a good opportunity to mention, I did a, another talk two years ago at our last Ocon on, it was called Free Will as a sub-theme of Atlas Shrugged. And you can find this on YouTube. And this is where I go deeper into that issue, why she doesn't get that they're doing that, why she doesn't understand that these people, why, they, why do they want him to die? And it involves a whole philosophical discovery process on her part to realize some people don't actually want to live. They don't, 
that they want to die themselves and they want others to die. And it's because she doesn't really believe people can choose death. That they, She thinks everybody's like her. She thinks everybody's going after production and industrial civilization. And she doesn't fully grasp that if you have free will, that's not true. So uh, that's, I think, the major discovery she had to make, uh, which contributes then to her understanding. These people are trying to kill Galt. That's going to undercut my purpose. That's why I need to quit. And I think we need to quit. So uh, thank you, everybody. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.